When you're smiling. Hey, you. Bubbly sparkling water is crisp, refreshing, and perfect for any occasion. Kind of like my voice, but in a can. No calories, no sweeteners, all smiles. Bubbly. Crack a smile. This episode is brought to you by Google. Google's two-step verification was built to secure your account and help prevent cyber attacks, even if your password is compromised. That's why Google has made it easy to sign into your account with this additional layer of protection. Just one tap and you're in. Learn more at safety.google. Hello, movie lovers. Welcome to the best damn movie-related show here on the internet. This show is, as always, for Movie Lovers Unite, John DeGorio, and I just want to say it's an honor and a privilege to be able to talk about movies in front of a virtual water cooler. And for today's podcast episode, I just want to go over some of the disappointing movies of 2019. Then I'm going into my Witcher review, and then I'm going to be talking about my top 10 movie influences on what got me into film. I know I touched on this a little bit throughout parts of my show and everything with riding with me and my car and stuff like that. And here's the thing. I want to go on ahead and talk about it a little bit more deeper. And also not to mention too, I also left out some movies on the list. And I want to go into a whole more, a lot more reason as to why these films actually influenced me into loving film the way that I do. So, with further ado, let me go on ahead and talk about the disappointing movies of 2019. Now, this is not like a top 10 list. This is not a top 5 list. This is me naming movies on top of my head that I've seen that I was let down on. Some movies I actually missed out on. Some movies and everything that I actually got to see and everything. And those are the movies that actually let me down. I am going to do a follow-up on the movies that I wanted to see but didn't get around to seeing. Because I'm actually going to go out and rent those movies and actually do nothing but movie reviews on those later on. But anyways, the movie on top of my head right now that I can remember that really let me down this summer was Terminator Dark Fate. And the reason why Terminator Dark Fate let me down was because I wanted this movie to be successful. I wanted this movie to bring balance to the Terminator franchise. I wanted this to be a fresh start for this Terminator franchise, especially after Terminator Genesis or Genesize or whatever movie that you want to actually call it and I still to this day I don't understand why they would actually try and recreate and try and recorrect and and have a whole entire direction on on the 1980s first Terminator movie because I actually felt like the very first Terminator movie was the best Terminator movie aside from T2 Judgment Day those two movies were the best out of the franchise and I don't understand why they would go back in time to try and correct those mistakes and everything when that movie was really good. But anyways, what disappointed me with Terminator Dark Fate was the fact that, you know, you had a good premise. You had a good setup on what you want to do. You have all these original characters back. You have Linda Hamilton back. You have Arnold back. You have the original person who played John Connor. And if you haven't seen this or anything like that, if you want to skip this, I completely understand. But this is going to be a spoiler part because this is what took me out of the movie what I don't understand is why are you gonna go ahead and put John Connor in this movie and then kill him off it doesn't make any sense at all you spent two and a half hours of T2 Judgment Day protecting this kid and then all of a sudden you're gonna kill him off and terminate Dark Fate so you can go ahead and give layers to Linda, Linda Hamilton as to why she doesn't like 
the Terminators anymore or anything like that. That does not set well with me. Even when they try to add those layers to her character, it just doesn't work. They fell flat. It felt like they didn't know what direction they wanted to go in. And then, too, even whenever they bring in Arnold and everything at this cabin, which you already know it's going to be him at this cabin that's sending these messages to Sarah and everything, saying that these Terminators are dropping down from the sky, and maybe you might want to go ahead and kill those Terminators... And we already know that's who it is that's actually sending these text messages. I don't know. I don't understand why they would actually try and fake that this was something that that she doesn't know who it is and everything. When in all rationality is we know who that is on the screen and everything. And she, she's trying to di- end up having disbelief on us as an audience to not know who is texting her. And it makes us feel dumb as an audience, especially when we actually know that it's him. Because even in the trailer we actually see that it's him in a cabin and everything and she goes i'm going to kill you at the first thing i do after i get done protecting this girl and there's no actual plot to this movie other than the fact there's another terminator movie and that this girl is supposed to be bringing a child into this world to try and save the world and I don't understand that whole entire concept of why they would do that when John Connor was the one who created the Terminators, which was also the reason why he was even protecting John Connor and everything else, too. So I don't understand why they would go ahead and do this. And then on top of that, too, all of a sudden, the Terminator grows a conscience. Don't know why. No explanation as to why he grew a conscience overnight. And even... The characters acknowledge the fact, hey, did you you go ahead and grow a conscience overnight because of the fact that you killed Linda Hamilton's son, John Connor? It does not make any sense. Even if you go back and watch the director's cut, there was actually a switch that had been turned on for him to actually feel some type of accountability for his actions. And they didn't go into an explanation on how he was able to feel some type of emotion after the fact that he ended up killing John Connor and he just walks off the beach like nothing happened. Then all of a sudden he feels guilty for killing John Connor and then he winds up falling for this girl and shows him the way that, you know, everything's going to be okay and everything and I'm going to give you the light that you need because of the fact that you feel guilty for what you've done. I'm sorry, I do not buy that for one single minute. And I don't like that whole entire concept of all of a sudden he just grows a conscience overnight. He has no... Come on. It made us feel like that we were stupid, that we didn't understand this whole entire franchise as a whole. And that we haven't kept up with any of the Terminator movies as of late. And then they do this over-the-top action scenes over and over again. And there was no need for it. And you see, what worked in the first two Terminators movies was, yes, there was action in it. But it also felt like a horror-type sci-fi movie. And I wish that they would have actually went back to those roots of the first two films. Because that's what was Terminator. And now it's just this big old huge explosion box office thing. Where there's not an actual plot line itself. And it just turns into one big huge pile of mess. And especially when they go ahead and name Arnold's Terminator, the most basic white person's name that you can actually think of, Carl, and then he's an interior decorator. I'm like, no. This is worse than Talk to the Hand off of Rise of the Machines. Excuse me. And 
you know, I just don't buy the whole entire Dark Fate thing. I really didn't care for this movie. This movie let me down. I had high hopes that this movie would have been great. And it just fell flat. And it's safe to say, after this bomb of Terminator Dark Fate, the franchise is now terminated. It's self-terminated on its own self. So, that's how I feel about it. Let me know what you guys actually think about Terminator Dark Fate. Now, I'm going to talk about The Lion King. This movie... It's a remake of an animated cartoon of The Lion King. It's actually copy and paste if you look at the way they actually set everything up. And I'm okay with remakes. I'm okay with the fact that we actually had a remake of Aladdin. I actually enjoyed Aladdin. But it's not on my best list of 2019. But I can acknowledge the fact that Aladdin is actually a better movie than The Lion King. For instance, with The Lion King and everything, when you look at the lions, there's no depth to those to those lions at all there's no here's the thing when you look at all the other animals they actually have facial features and stuff like that with the lions they're very one-dimensional there's nothing really to them when they actually are talking or anything like that and then whenever you hear the whole theme song of the lion king and everything where all these animals come together on on that rock it just feels flat usually in the animated movie, it's supposed to have this big old huge thing where it zooms in on Pride Rock. And that's it. Instead, this thing just slides on in there like nothing. And there's no emotional... There's nothing there at all whenever that movie actually happens and starts off. There's no excitement. At least for me, it didn't work. And then the whole stampede thing, seeing Mufasa die again. I didn't cry one bit when I saw him fall again or anything like that because I already knew what was going to happen. There's no emotional attachment to the character like I, like I had whenever the original Lion King came out because we actually got invested in those characters. And it was very hard for me to actually get invested back into those characters again because it's been so long. And we also seen the Lion King over and over again to the point that we actually know what happens to Mufasa. And then also the whole entire thing with Scar. And then let me tell you this. I thought Timon and Pumbaa was the standout of this film. Even though they didn't do uh, one of their scenes where they dressed up in hula skirts or anything like that. But they reenacted a scene from Beauty and the Beast, which was actually pretty funny for this movie, for this live action movie. And I thought it actually worked very well for that. It wasn't forced. Then they cut out the one important scene with Simba where... The bamboo goes on ahead and hits him upside the head with the, uh, with his stick. And he says, life is hard and everything. And that's a life lesson for Simba. And matter of fact, people can actually learn from that themselves. Where life is hard and it's up to you to go ahead and get back up again. And they missed the opportunity to go ahead and reintroduce that into this world. In this culture. In this whole entire way of thinking. Where life is hard. Get a helmet basically, and get back up again. They missed an opportunity to do that. And as a matter of fact, I wish they would have just thrown a coconut at his head and hit him upside the head that way if they weren't going to use the stick. But they didn't do any of that. I was really disappointed they didn't have that in there, even though I actually read something where they didn't have it. But I was hoping that that review was actually wrong. But, hey, it is what it is. I just didn't really care for that whole entire thing. And not only that, but we also know how it wraps up. There's a couple of new songs in this movie. And The Lion King, for me, was one of the most disappointed movies that I've seen 
and a live action adaptation of what Disney is trying to do with their stuff. Now, am I trying to tell you to go out and not see this movie? No. Am I telling you not to rent this movie? No. Same thing with Terminator Dark Fate. If you want to go out and check this mo- these movies out yourself, go ahead. I'm not stopping you. I'm just giving you my perspective on what I think. And just because I don't like a certain movie doesn't mean that you shouldn't like it either. So another movie that I was disappointed in, which was my other most anticipated film of 2019, because I remember actually hearing things about Melissa McCarthy being in this movie and the fact that you actually have Elizabeth Moss in this movie and then you also have the girl from from Girls Trip in it and they're actually playing mob wives and everything because mob mobster wives and their husbands wind up getting arrested and matter of fact this movie is actually called the kitchen if i didn't say the title i'm sorry that's actually the name of it anyways it's up to these women who are in new york to take up to the main streets of new york to try and provide for their families while their husbands are in jail and this is actually based off of a dc comic and i was actually surprised at how bad this movie was there is no, uh, mo- here's the thing, these girls talk about how much of a badass they are on the screen, and they're not doing anything. All they're doing is picking up the money, that the protection money that they had set out, and that's it. There's nothing there, and not only that, but there's no layers to Melissa McCarthy's character, even though some people say there is. For me, there isn't, but I can actually appreciate the fact that she's not playing a butch character like she normally does. She's actually playing a very fragile character in this film because of her husband and everything else. And now it's up to her to try and be a tough person and try and take and provide for her family rather than the husband providing for for their family through the mob. And, you know, I can appreciate that aspect, but there's no actual layers to how these women are actually taken to the streets or anything like that. And then Elizabeth Moss is probably maybe the most standout actress in this whole entire movie because there is layers to her she's in in an abusive situation with her husband and he gets arrested of course because she's also with the other two actresses um husbands and so anyway she gets abused by her husband and everything she gets pushed around and stuff like that and then finally she winds up snapping to the point where She's cutting up body parts to the people that they killed and stuff like that. And it brings a whole new level to what you actually see her from point A to point B. And that's actually something I wanted to see from the other two actresses. As a matter of fact, you even have the girl who played on Girls Trip that was trying to do that kind of level out where she winded up going through this whole entire emotional thing with her husband. Not only that, but with her husband, not only that, with her being black and an Irish and an Irish setting where one side of the city is Irish, the other side is Italian, the other side is black people. This is actually back in the 1970s. So each part of that city is actually broken down into sections and she's in the Irish part of the town and she's black and she's married to this guy. And then you have this woman that the guy's um, mother, that's actually just tearing her down every single time you sh- that you turn around and she doesn't even want to help her because of the race of her color and everything else. And basically that was also when maybe, maybe one of the other standouts to this movie too, if I'm not mistaken, but it does not save this movie. It does not save it from the catastrophe that it is. And another thing too, is when you have actresses on a sidewalk, usually they do this big old, huge wide 
spread of the sidewalk to where you can actually get the feel of New York City and then you're walking with these characters. Instead, it's just like she says something, she says something, and she says something, and then she says something back. And it's just one little small sidewalk and the camera is just on those three actresses and you don't feel like that you're walking with these actresses at all. As a matter of fact, you don't even feel like that you're walking in the background with these actresses or anything like that as they're talking. And that's just something that I wanted to actually see from, from that movie and I just didn't get it. I just didn't get anything that I wanted from the kitchen. I was disappointed especially whenever I, they were dealing with mobsters and stuff like that and you have these women that are being emotionally abused from their husbands and then now they have to try and defend themselves to rise up from the ashes to try and take charge of their family while their husbands are in jail and take care of the household. And I didn't get anything from that other than Elizabeth Moss's character and the girl from from Girl Strip. But if, like I said, if you have, if you love the kitchen, if you like the kitchen, or you haven't checked out the kitchen, check it out. Let me know what you guys think. And I know I'm gonna get a lot of crap for this, but I'm a diehard Stephen King fan, and I loved it. Chapter one, I thought it was a great coming of age story, a great horror film, especially centered around the whole entire Stephen King universe. And also, two, it chapter one was actually one of my favorite movies of 2017, and now they came out with this two years later. And I have to say, I this was my most anticipated movie of the summer. And I've also read the 1,779-page book. And I'm not trying to compare from apples to oranges or anything like that. Because the movie is its own thing. And I really love the chemistry between the adults. I really like that. It just felt more like flashback, flashback, flashback. Rather than just dealing with the adults. And I get the fact that that's in the book with the flashbacks. But I wish they would have concentrated more on the on the adults a little bit more and then go in and face the clown like they like I wanted them to. But I understand why the flashbacks were there, why they were necessary and why they were there. But I just wish they would have actually focused on the adults a little bit more because I feel like that would have been a little bit better. But I can actually tell you what they actually did do better. They actually did better at explaining the town history. They actually broke that down a lot better than what the miniseries did because the miniseries actually confused the hell out of me to the point where I didn't understand what was going on or anything like that within the city. And then they broke it down on It Chapter 2 with this movie and I really liked that aspect to it. But as for them concentrating on the adults or and stuff like that, that's what really let me down. And I also had high expectations for this because of the fact that it's my most anticipated film of 2019 aside from The Kitchen. But in Chapter 2, I own it. I'm actually probably going to do a revisit, a revisit review on that, on that movie because I'm actually going to go ahead and review both movies at the same time and then give you my whole entire review on both films at the same time. So stay stay tuned for that. Then, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. This is actually based off of a young adult's book. And I'll, I'll, I'm going I'm to own up to something, too. I didn't care about the PG-13 rating because of the fact that it's more geared towards kids rather than adults. So I didn't really care about that. All I cared about was a good plot, a good story, and what they were going to do with this. And they combined all those stories that we actually know from 
from scary stories to tell in the dark, but there's actually some more stories that they can actually tell, which I can actually appreciate the fact that they're actually going to might try and make another scary stories to tell in the dark. But I got to be honest with you. The dialogue of the characters was very flat. There was no layers to anything. It really didn't do anything towards me to where I can actually say I would love to go out and watch this movie again or rent or buy this on Blu-ray or rent this movie. And uh, I really, like I said, I wanted to enjoy this movie. And the PG-13 thing didn't bother me at all. I don't really care if a movie's PG-13 or Red R when it comes to certain movies and stuff like that. Because I've seen bad Red R movies and I've seen good PG-13 horror movies. I mean, it doesn't really matter. And with Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, it's just left me in the dark. Playing out and simple. When you look at the dialogue, when you look at the special effects, when you look at everything that they did with this film, it just didn't do what I wanted it to do. If you guys enjoy this movie, I'm happy for you, but this movie definitely left me in the dark, and it left me with my head, with me scratching my head at the end of this movie, being like, okay, this is it, that's the end of the movie, and especially whenever it only clocks in at like 96 minutes long, and I get the fact that, you know, you don't really need to make a two and a half hour movie or anything like that, but I feel like they could have at least did a little something a little bit more better for that. And then there's the Jennifer Lopez movie, Hustlers, that came out. And what intrigued me to watch this was the fact that it was based off of a true story. This actually did happen where you had these women that brought these guys into a strip club and then ro- drugged them and then robbed them. And then the then the customers actually can't go back and say that strippers took their money because they feel embarrassed because they are men and, we're, and we're not supposed to feel like that we got taken advantage of. So therefore, so, uh, until one guy actually admitted to the fact that he got drugged and the next thing you know, several other people came came up and said that they got drugged as well. This also takes place during the time of the whole entire deal with the real estate and everything as well. And also, too, I actually felt like the chemistry with with Jennifer Lopez and also the one, the Asian woman that's in this movie, too, I felt like the chemistry with the other strippers, when I say other strippers, I mean other extras that was in the movie. The chemistry was there whenever they're interacting with the extras on this film. Cardi B, on the other hand, she can act. She can actually do some serious acting whenever it comes down to it and everything. I'm not going to lie. But, you know, there's only so much that you can do with this movie. And I really feel like that this movie was one of those things where, you know... I really was hesitant to go see this movie. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I really had no intentions of seeing it. But, you know, it was $5 Tuesday. So I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to go ahead and check this out. And I got to admit, I mean, it was it was an okay movie. I didn't really care for some of the stuff that was in it. Like, for instance, when you're looking at women drugging men and I don't and this also goes with the whole entire thing with men drugging women too. I don't agree with either side of that. I don't agree with that at all on both sides. And then also, too, they actually do this little sound effect thing where you have this one actress that's actually interviewing um, someone and all of a sudden it just goes quiet and they actually executed that really well. 
to where I can actually say that didn't actually take me out of the film. Everybody's like, what the hell is actually happening with this? So I actually like that part. But the movie as, as a whole, I didn't really care for it all that much. But hey, if you guys like Hustlers, let me know what you guys think. I actually did a full review on that, so check that out. Okay, so my other film that I actually was actually anticipated on was The Irishman. Now, I know I'm going to get a lot of hate for this as well, but I'm not one of those people that actually hated the film. I liked the film. I was just disappointed with the film. There's a difference between not liking a film in its whole entire entirety, and there's a such thing as being disappointed with the film. And I was disappointed with it because of the fact of how long it actually took them to actually make this film. I wish that Robert De Niro, I wish that Al Pacino and that Joe Pesci was back in their prime again to play these roles. And the age software and everything for this movie, for the aging effects, was actually pretty good to the point where I couldn't even tell that these actors were actually being a part of this special effect thing. I, as a matter of fact, I actually call this the Benjamin Button special effects because these are typically the same special effects that you actually have from the Benjamin Button stuff. But another thing too is, the, some people say, well, this was actually too long. It was three hours long. And this is also why I said too that having a three hour long movie might actually cause the movie to bomb. So putting it on Netflix was actually a pretty smart move to actually have a more Scorsese movie on on Netflix, so I actually have to say they actually did a good job at putting this movie out and promoting it. And then, two people's like, "Well, I thought this was a mobster movie. It is a mobster movie. It still is a mob movie. It's just that it shows the politics that the mobsters play within the whole entire thing when you're dealing with politics." And Jimmy Hoffa was actually one of the big guys that was there, part of the union. And I'm reading the book and everything, and. He was actually the one who put the mob there, and then he wanted to actually put, and this is how hypocrisy is, he wanted to go on ahead and rat them out for being in the union whenever he was the one who actually put them in the union to begin with. So, there's that part. I like the fact that they actually they actually showed a political side to it, and also, too, I like the plot line. I love Robert De Niro. I love Joe Pesci in this movie. I loved... That, okay, the reason why that this movie's on my disappointing list is because of the fact of how old they are and all of that, but whenever they get up, you can actually tell, even though they have a posture coach, you can actually tell that they are too old to be playing those roles, especially whenever you look at Robert De Niro, he's over there kicking the crap out of someone, and then he has to try and run away from a cop, and you can tell it's not a young man that's running, it's an old man that's running, away and to me they could have gotten a young actor to play Robert De Niro's part same thing with Al Pacino's part too because even whenever he gets out of this out of his chair you can actually tell that that's not a way that a young person gets out of a recliner it's a 72 year old man getting out of a recliner versus a 42 year old man which is who he was actually supposed to be playing as Jimmy Hoffa and it just doesn't work uh, you know, I love the special effects with it. I love the plot. But that's the main thing that actually took me out of this movie. Was the whole entire thing was, yeah, you can go on ahead and get de-aging all you want. You can go on ahead and get that. But you can't de-age special effects. You, I mean, de-age the way people move or anything. You could have went on ahead, got some younger actors to play these roles. And then also have the OG gangster characters in this whole entire thing and I love Joe Pesci's role as Russell he's 
I was expecting Russell to actually be more of the loudmouth guy that we got from Casino and also from Goodfellas. Instead, he's quiet. He's content. He actually knows how to talk to people. And then you actually have... Then you are actually have Al Pacino playing the hothead of Jimmy Hoffa. And... I actually love that aspect that he's the one who is actually the loudmouth, and at the end, he's actually the one who winds up being just like Sonny is on The Godfather with his own mouth and his own, and acting out on his own, um, on his own actions is what brings him down. And that's what I love about The Irishman with that part. But like I said, the only thing that I was disappointed with was the fact that with the the aging, and everything and the way they moved. And that's pretty much the only thing I was disappointed with. I understand that I gave like a positive review. But I just wanted to give you my reasons of why I was disappointed with it just a little bit. So now I'm going to move up to The Adams Family. And this is actually the eighth movie that I was disappointed with. And the reason why I put The Adams Family on this list is because of the fact that it was an animated movie. I had no intention of seeing it. I fi- there was nothing else coming out. So I'm like, you know what? Let me go ahead and check out The Addams Family. And basically you have The Addams Family moves out into this creepy house. And then you actually have this reality star who wants to try and redecorate it and everything. And usually when they even do this, even in live action movies and stuff like that, this thing will fall apart really quickly. And it did. It didn't do anything for me. The Addams Family movie animation style and everything else was not really all that great. The chemistry with the act, the actors and everything wasn't really on par. I really didn't like the storyline. It fell flat. And yes, I did suffer through the hour and 20, 30 minutes of this movie because I don't know when to get up. So there's that. <laughs> but anyways, now I'm going to get down to the Witcher review. Now, Netflix just released this Witcher's TV series Friday, and I binge-watched the whole entire thing over the weekend, and I've never read the books, i never played the single video game of The Witcher, so I didn't know what to expect, so I just went in there thinking of a Game of Thrones TV show that I can actually follow through since Game of Thrones is now over with, so now I have this other fantasy show that I can actually watch. And Henry Cavill is actually the best thing about the Witcher, if you think about it. But it's about this Witcher named Geralt. And he's a muted, um, mutated monster hunter who struggles to find his place in the world in which people often prove more wicked than beast. Henry Cavill is Geralt of Rivia and then Anya uh, Chalorda. I think, I think that's how you say it. But anyway, she plays Yennefer. And Yennefer is actually a witch. But... The reason why I put these two on here, because those two are my favorite characters in the show, and also, too, they have really good chemistry on screen to the point where I wanted them to to get together. But anyways, uh, if you're going into this show, too, also remember this. There's a huge time jump, and here's here's my pet peeve with Netflix. They don't ever let you know that there's actually time jumps in a certain show. They don't show you that there's flashbacks in the show or the year that certain flashbacks are happening. And instead, I'm going in there like, okay, what happened at this point? What happened over here? And there's a lot of time jumps, and I understand that happens in the video game, but you need to go on ahead and fill this in 
with the audience to let us know what the time jumps are actually are. And then also, too, I also found out that there's 150, five, uh, 150 side quests that's actually in this TV show, and they were all they they put them in there. And I'm like, well, that's great if you're uh, into the video games and stuff like that. And I'm actually lost with this whole entire show at first and everything. And then the dialogue at the very beginning, I didn't really care for because it was kind of one of those things reminding me of cheesy 90s dialogue. And then him fighting with the monster at the very beginning was actually pretty cool. I really liked that. Then he actually meets up with this wizard who wants him wants him to kill this girl and that's threatening his land. And then the girl winds up trying to get him, get Geralt to go ahead and kill, and kill the wizard. And it turns out that, so Geralt is the type of person that doesn't want to kill anybody because he's always being judged for being mutant. And he says, once he draws that line, he winds up being who these, who the townspeople say that he is. And he doesn't want to draw that line. And, he, and she goes, well, pick a side. Pick the worst of two evils. So that's what he does, and it winds up fire, backfiring him at the very beginning of the show. And then you have Yennefer, who's actually born with a hunchback on her back, and she's actually kind of, you know, kind of, I'm not going to say the word, but special needs is actually the best word that I can actually think of. But anyways, she's actually a witch, a mage, and she winds up, she can actually do portals and stuff like that. And this witch winds up bringing her into her own domain and training her as a, as a mage. And then you realize as she winds up doing something to where she winds up becoming beautiful and everything. She sacrifices her own body to be where she, who she wants to be to try and persuade certain kingdoms to follow her and stuff like that. I love that transformation. I love the chemistry between Geralt and her. Then there's also the story of the little girl at the very beginning of the of this show where the mother winds up dying in the war. And then she tells her to go after Geralt because Geralt will protect her. And here I am thinking that this is actually going to be one of those shows where Geralt is going to be protecting her throughout the whole entire season against these other kingdoms or whatever. And it's the exact opposite of how I thought it was going to go down. And I was kind of let down on that because I was actually expecting a lot more with that plot line. But the way it wraps up and everything in eight episodes, and I feel like this, eight episodes is plenty of time to actually tell a story that you actually want to tell. I have no problem with watching eight hours of television because I think that's actually pretty cool that you can actually binge watch something in eight hours. But like I said, the chemistry between... Yennefer and Geralt is fantastic. The fantasy element is really good. Then the fight scenes is really good. Some people are saying, well, the fight scenes and everything is a lot better than The Mandalorian. Let me just tell you something. Mandalorian's fight scenes is Mandalorian's fight style scenes. That's it. You don't compare Geralt, which is actually part of a video game adaptation, is also mixed in with fantasy, while you also have a space opera show that's actually in outer space, and his stunts are a lot different, and his movements are a lot different than Geralt's. And as a matter of fact, I have to say, Geralt's movements, and here's the thing, I even watched the gameplay, and Geralt's movements, even the way that Henry Cavill moves as the Witcher, is exactly how it is in the gameplay. And I actually was convinced that he is Geralt, that he is this guy, this being, that can actually take down 
these people uh, take down these people and everything. And the stunt work was really good. The choreography with him was really good and stuff like that. I'm excited to actually find out what's going to happen in the next season, but we have to wait until 20, 2021 or 2022, one of those. But I had a lot, of, a lot of fun watching The Witcher and watching Henry Cavill as The Witcher. As a matter of fact, they actually had to keep re-sewing his clothes because his biceps are so huge that he kept on breaking out of it. So I thought that was actually pretty funny where you have Man of Steel breaking out his own clothes. Who would have thought? But anyways, check out that. Now I'm going to talk about my top 10 movies that influenced me into film. And the very first one, I know I talked about this on Riding, Riding With Me, and I'm going to talk about it again, but a little bit more deeper than what I wanted to. So if you've heard this, you can skip over it and go into my E.T. Re, um, my next film will be E.T. So whenever I start introducing E.T. into it, you can go ahead and go into that one. But anyways, The Godfather for me was one of those films. It was an Italian mobster movie place in the 1970s Don Corleone was actually the head honcho of the Corleone family you have Michael Corleone you have then you also have Sonny and then you of course you also had the adopted brother and the adopted brother could never be in the in the Italian mob or anything like that because he's actually Irish and Irish people cannot be in the mob or anything like that because of the fact that they he actually has to be from Italy and also be fully blooded Italian but anyways, I don't mean to get into the whole entire background, but I'm just trying to lay out the groundwork. But Michael comes home from war, and he introduces his, he wants to introduce his family to his girlfriend, Kate. And Kate is in love with Michael. Michael doesn't want any part of the family business or anything like that. We're actually introduced to Luca Brasi. We're introduced to all these other characters that we're actually going to be facing later on. And then, of course... Don Corleone is actually taking a request on his daughter's birthday from the mortician. The mortician needs a favor, and of course he winds up going on ahead and pursuing that favor. But what I loved about this was the Italian music, the Italian side of everything, the culture with the Italian side. And then also, too, you also have Michael, who has no choice now but to take the reins of the family business because of the fact Sonny is a loose cannon, just like I said with in The Irishman, when you look at Al Pacino's character that he was playing with, Jimmy Hoffa. And Sonny was a loose cannon, always basing his whole entire intellect on his own actions, and that's what, brought, that's what happened with Sonny. And, you know, Michael is the most level-headed person there, just like Russell. He doesn't act on his own emotions, and that's what Sonny does. He acts on his own emotions, and that's what gets him in trouble. And Michael also was in war. He actually knows strategy. He knows what he has to do. And then he winds up having to hide out in Italy because of the stuff that he actually did in New York because of him trying to negotiate with the, co the crooked cop that's actually part of the other crime family and everything else and some stuff winds up happening and how he's hiding out in Italy he winds up marrying somebody else and then of course some stuff happens in Italy and now he just has to move back over to New York and let me just tell you this the scenes in Italy was just fantastic I loved the scenery in that I love watching Michael traveling through Italy then also too you also have uh 
the camera angles, the way everything is set up, and then also the grand finale of this whole entire thing, how everything comes, comes crashing down on the other family while Michael's doing his thing. I'm not going to go into spoilers territory. I understand this film's like over 30 years old or more, but I want this movie to be one of those films that people can actually remember for the first time seeing, if you haven't seen it, because I actually know people that haven't seen this film, so check this film out if you haven't seen it. Because I'm, I'm going to guarantee you, you're going to see some of the best mobs, mob scenes that you've ever seen before. The, some of the best mob hits that you've ever seen before. The music is great. The chemistry with the actors is great. The actresses are great. This film is just fantastically well done, perfectly well executed. And I even read the book. And there's actually a Godfather book that you can actually read. And I read the and matter of fact, it's actually connected in with Godfather 1 and Godfather 2. There is no Godfather 3, and we're not going to even talk about that stinker. But anyways, check out The Godfather. Now, I'm going to be talking about E.T. This movie's directed by Steven Spielberg, and what I loved about this movie was the fact that you have this suburbs, suburb family and everything in a small town. And basically, this is where the whole entire town is set, set in. And nothing really ever happens in this town. It's a very small town, very excluded and everything. Then all of a sudden, the spaceship comes crashing down, and here comes E.T. And now it's up to Elliot to try and protect E.T. from the horrible government and everything. And what? And not only that, but it even grabs your attention as a child. And it has a very childlike basis where Elliot is actually trying to protect this alien because this alien is his friend. He doesn't want anything to happen to E.T. or anything like that. And, you know, this film is just really great whenever it goes through, you know, a whole entire setup of your imagination, being a kid, trying to protect. It's about friendship. It's about loyalty. It's about who your actual friends are. And how far they will go to have your back. And it's also about brothers, brotherhood, and everything else. If you haven't seen E.T. or anything, I think that you guys are in for a treat. Because this is actually, hands down, one of my favorite Steven Spielberg movies. Aside from Hook, and aside from Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm going to get to that in a few minutes. But E.T. is always one of those movies that actually gravitates me to want to become a film fan. The same thing with The Godfather. And this is actually what got me into loving film. And if you haven't seen E.T., check it out. I mean it. I, I, you're going to love it. As a matter of fact, I actually have another Steven Spielberg movie, Jaws. And I talked about that a little bit on the car riding episode with John. And Jaws, for me, with the special effects, for the practical effects that they had at the time, and then especially with the animatronic shark breaking down, and then they had to use whatever obstacles that they had to have, to make this movie and make props work to, uh, to where we don't even see the shark until maybe about an hour and a half into it. And then also, too, at the very beginning of the film, we don't even see what actually drags this girl under the water or anything. All we know is that there's something underneath the water, some type of creepiness to it. And then once it comes into full force where we actually have a shark on the beach and then Brody's over there trying to protect the people of the beach and the mayor doesn't want to listen to him or anything like that. And... It makes us want to actually punch the mayor in the face because of the fact that Brody's actually warning him, hey, we have to close the beach down. And he's like, no, we cannot close the beach down because we have tourists and da-da-da-da-da. It just goes to show how far certain people actually, how much power certain people have. And then when you're trying to tell them something, they won't want to overrule you. 
But then it's also about him protecting his family as well because his family's actually out in that water too and he's trying to protect his family from a shark biting, getting uh, someone getting bitten, including his family. So it's about family, it's about friendship, it's about bonding, especially whenever you look at Richard Dreyfus and all the other characters that's actually on the boat with Brody and stuff like that. I really love the chemistry with Richard Dreyfus and Brody. And then I uh, forgot the other character's name where he actually talks about hunting down a shark and getting bit by a shark and the rules and the guidelines of taking down a shark. I really loved his character. And the whole entire effect of this movie was just fantastically well done, perfectly well executed. And Jaws is just one of those movies that's just a great time to actually watch a good Steven Spielberg movie. Not only that, but even the Jaws attraction was one of my favorite rides at Universal Studios before they took it out. And I remember my grandfather actually taking me to Universal Studios to and put me on the side where Jaws actually popped up. And then the boat is tilting sideways. And here I am trying to hold on to my brother because I'm actually almost falling into the water and everything. Because I'm little at the time, so therefore I don't have that much weight or anything to where I can actually hold myself up. And here I am sliding into what looks like going to be going into the water. But anyways, Jaws is actually one of my favorite movies. Then we actually have The Crow, which stars Brandon Lee. And I talked about this back in October, being one of my favorite 31 Days of Horror movies. And you have a guy, Bruce Lee's son, playing in The Crow as Eric Draven. And Eric Draven comes back after a year later to avenge the people that killed and raped his girlfriend. And also throws him out of the window. And I love the darkness of it. I love the black and white of it. I love... The music, the soundtrack to this movie. It's very grungy. Not only that, but this is also what paved the way for me to be in rock alternative music. This is what got me into Stone Temple Pilots. This is what got me into Nine Inch Nails. This is what got me into what I love about The Crow. And what got me into wanting to read the graphic novel and everything. And the graphic novel is totally different from the actual movie itself. But... You know, I really have to say, I really enjoyed The Crow for what it is, for what the, what Brandon Lee did with that performance. God bless him. I know he passed away making this movie, but I'm so thankful that we have this movie because of Brandon Lee. And James Obar made this made the comic book because his wife got ran over by a drunk driver, and that was his way of actually coping with with his loss and everything. And I really have to say, I really enjoyed The Crow and the soundtrack to go with it. And it's one of the best movies that I've seen when I was a kid. I was 10 years old when I saw this movie. And I still have this movie even to this day. I own it on Blu-ray. I own it on VHS. I have a DVD box set. This movie is just perfectly well done, perfectly well executed. Not only that, but... Even the camera angles, too, as when Tintin is throwing the knives. And then you also have T-Bird, who gets strapped into the car. And then, oh my god, I can just go on about The Crow. But, you know, if you haven't seen The Crow, check it out. It's actually on Netflix, so check that out. And, you know, another movie I'm going to drop down to is actually an underrated movie that really bombed at the the movie theater. And... And that movie is Shawshank Redemption. And matter of fact, it got snubbed out of an Academy Award because of Forrest Gump. And 
You know, I believe Shawshank Redemption is still a better film than Forrest Gump is by any day by far. Especially if you look at the performances and everything between Morgan Freeman. And then you also have the uh, actor who plays Andy. I can't place his actual name, but I'm just going to call him Andy. And basically, Andy gets framed for a murder that he didn't do. And he's now put in Shawshank, Shawshank and... Morgan Freeman is actually there with him. He plays the character Red. And get this. Red is actually supposed to be played as a white Irishman. Instead, they actually casted Morgan Freeman as this guy. And I have to say, whenever Andy gets first put gets put in prison and everything. And this is actually based off of a Stephen King short story or novella. And Andy gets thrown into this prison prison. And this is his first time, his first night in prison. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't weep. He doesn't do anything. He just quiet and sticks to himself. And then, you know, then he starts fitting in with Red and everything because Red is actually starts to have his back. And not only that, but there's also some people that are, that was trying to start trouble with Andy and everything. And of course, Red had his back the whole entire time. Red at first doesn't really trust him. And then as he go, keeps on going, and the story plays out and everything, Red is one of his best friends that he actually had in jail. And this is actually his redemption. This is actually what Shawshank Redemption's about, is the redemption of Andy and the redemption of Red. And them try, thinking of ways to actually try and figure out a way out of that prison and everything. Especially how hard that Red tried to actually get out of prison during the time... during the time and everything whenever he was out trying to get out on parole and they would never grant him permission to get out on parole. And then of course, Andy's in there for life because of a murder he didn't do. And so come, and this is actually a great story about a man who's trying to find redemption in his own life and try and make the best of it in prison. And then also try and make friends at the same time, which is also a hard thing to do in prison. And I, if you haven't seen Shawshank Redemption and know the plot twist to this movie, the plot twist is even better whenever you find out what that plot twist actually is. But Shawshank Redemption is one of my favorite movies of not all time, but it's actually one of my favorite movies that I'll watch even when it's on AMC. I even own the Blu-ray and everything. So if you haven't seen Shawshank Redemption, I recommend that. Then um, now I'm going to talk about Forrest Gump, which <laughs> I said that was at, where I actually said Shawshank Redemption was actually a better movie than Forrest Gump. But what I loved about Forrest Gump was, yeah, his IQ was not that big or anything like that. And also, too, you know, it's actually one of those stories where it's about a guy who's who's trying to actually fit in with society because he's so different. Because of the fact that he's actually, well, he's actually, I'm just going to put down special or special needs. And... Basically, he winds up doing all this stuff. He goes into the army. He can run fast. He can do everything because he's actually... And not only that, but when he was younger, he was on braces and everything. And then he was in love with Jenny. And Jenny was always the one who was kind of in the back of his head the whole entire time when he was in, in the army and everything. And Jenny never really cared for him or anything like that. I mean, this whole... And, you know, the performances with Tom Hanks, the music is what made everything special with this film. And as everything plays out with Forrest Gump and then also the shrimping boat between Bubba and him and also, too, with Lieutenant Dane is actually one of my favorite characters in Forrest Gump. 
And you have all these characters, all these actors and actresses coming together to be in this movie. And it's just perfectly well done, perfectly well executed. Forrest Gump is still today one of everybody's favorite films today that Tom Hanks ever played. Aside from, you know, get this, I actually love the movie Big. Big is actually one of my favorite Tom Hanks movies. But seeing him in Forrest Gump, seeing this guy go from being from the bottom to the top and everything, rising above everything, rising above being bullied and also to be, um, rising above anything that anybody tried to slow him down on. And that's what I love about that story. And that's why I love Forrest Gump. Rudy is also another one of those movies too that is about a guy who is down on his luck. Everybody's second guessing him. Everything keeps on going wrong for Rudy. And Rudy, his ultimate goal is to be at in Notre Dame. And everybody's just saying, no, that's not going to happen. That's not going to end up being what happens. And he just keeps on pushing himself to the limit to where... That's his ultimate goal. That's what he wants to do. He wants to play football for this college. He wants to do more in life than what he's doing. And he keeps pushing himself. It's about an underdog who winds up coming up from nothing and then coming up to finish his goal. By the end of this movie, you're actually filled with tears in your eyes because of the fact that because of the fact that Rudy's actually someone to actually root for. And if you haven't seen Rudy, check it out. I think you guys are going to enjoy that. And then Star Wars. George Lucas. Come on. The, during that time, let's just be honest. The special effects for that time period and everything was something brand new, something fresh, something that we haven't seen before. And as a matter of fact, he actually sold American Graffiti just to get this movie made. And, you know, seeing Mark Hamill on the screen, Carrie Fisher on the, on the, on, in this movie, this... This whole entire, and Harrison Ford too, this whole entire cast was beautifully well structured. And we haven't seen this type of movie, or at least they haven't seen this type of movie in the 1970s during that time whenever this movie got released. Nobody saw special effects like they did or anything like that. And this is actually the first time that anybody actually got to see space the way that George Lucas saw space. And then seeing a dark character like Darth Vader show up out of nowhere. And Luke Skywalker has to try and bring balance to the Force. And you have Princess Leia, who's wanting to be rescued. And then you have Apollo. Then you have all this, all these other key characters in this whole entire thing. And then you have Han Solo. You have a whole entire... You have a... You, George Lucas knew what he was doing when he was making Star Wars. And he followed his dream of making Star Wars for everybody. And this is why I love Star Wars. There's a balance between good and evil. And either you love the dark side or you love the light side. And there's no in-between. You love either one of those sides. And you want to be those characters. And you want to root for whatever characters that you want to root for. And it's rooted down in us to actually love these movies. Or at least for me anyways. Star Wars for me shaped film in the way it is today. If it wasn't for Star Wars, we wouldn't have... We wouldn't have directors like J.J. Abrams. We wouldn't have any of these science fiction uh, uh, directors or actors or anything like that. We wouldn't have any of those directors if it wasn't for Star Wars. And Star Wars is one of my favorite movies that influenced me as a film fan, as a Star Wars fan, and influenced me in a big way. That's actually number eight on my list. Number nine on my list is Indiana Jones. Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is actually another Steven Spielberg movie. And it's about an archaeologist who's 
who also teaches and goes out on his on the limb to try and find artifacts and he's going on these adventures and he's having fun doing these adventures and he hates snakes and <clears throat> I just love Harrison Ford's performances in this movie and it's just so fantastically well done and the way Steven Spielberg directs this movie and knows what he wants to do with his character and then also too in, with the Nazis and stuff like that you don't know if Harrison Ford is actually going to come out on top or if he's going to actually be the one who winds up dying towards the end of this movie. And that's what I have to say I loved about Indiana Jones is the fact that it's an adventure movie. It's one of those movies that's kind of horror-like as well because of the fact with the art and then the Nazis and then stuff like that is happening. So Raiders of the Lost Ark is actually one of my favorite Indiana Jones movies and also one of my favorite Steven Spielberg movies aside from Jaws and E.T. So... Check out Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's actually on uh, Netflix right now, and I think it might be on Hulu. I'm not 100% sure. I know that I'm kind of giving you guys shorter versions of what I was going to say, but I'm going to be honest with you. I'm losing my voice right now talking, but I'm going to go on ahead, talk about one more movie before my voice goes out, (laughs) but that movie is the 1989 Tim Burton Batman movie. Now, I was fan. I was a fan of the 1960 Batman movie of the Adam West Batman, and I remember going into the movie theaters watching this, and my mom explaining this to me as a kid. This is totally different than what you saw on the small screen. This is different from Adam West's Batman. This is a whole entire different Batman movie. So if you're expecting the bang, pow, and everything else, you're not going to see that in this movie. You're going to see something different. So I knew right then and there I was in for something different. And I fell in love with Jack Jack Nicholson's character of the Joker, his performance of the Joker. I thought it was a perfect blend of uh, Cesar Romero's Joker. And it was also dark for its time. If you look at the gothic-looking way of how dark that movie actually was and how it wasn't more towards geared towards kids. But you can actually feel Gotham City. You can actually smell what Gotham City actually smelled like because of what Tim Burton actually brought to the table. And then you also have... Michael Keaton, which is also Mr. Mom, and here's the thing, as a kid, I didn't really pay, I didn't, here's the thing, I didn't know there was any backlash with Michael Keaton as, as, uh, as Bruce Wayne, or anything like that, because I only knew him as Beetlejuice, and I knew him as Batman now, but that's about it, and I didn't know there was any backlash, and his performances, Bruce Wayne and Batman, he actually knew how to actually balance it out a little bit for the 1989 version compared to how Christian Bale did. Christian Bale actually balanced it out the way he needed to balance out for that time. But the 1989 Batman, yes, it has a little bit of cheesiness to it. You can actually believe that Michael Keaton is Bruce Wayne and is Batman. And he's actually, his parents actually died trying to protect him from the guy, from the Joker that killed his family. And... The soundtrack with Prince and everything is actually hilarious if you actually check those music videos out and everything because it really doesn't actually go with the film. But what does go with the film is Danny Elfman actually doing the scoring for the soundtrack and everything. And then having Prince on that soundtrack as well is actually pretty cool as well because it's more like a Prince album rather than a Batman soundtrack. But it actually worked for the 1989 it actually worked for that Batman flavor for that time period so that does it for me for talking about the 
movies that I was disappointed in, my Witcher non-spoiler review, and the movies that influenced me into film. So, if you liked anything that I talked about tonight, let me know. I'm going to have a voicemail in the description to where you can actually send me a voicemail of what what influenced you, what you liked about The Witcher, and also, to what... Um, movies disappointed you in 2019 i'm actually going to have a list of the best movies of 2019 that i actually enjoyed then after that i'm gonna have my anticipated list of movies from 2020 that i'm looking forward to in 2020 so stick around for that and until next time bye bye